Let's get an assessment of what's going to happen between Israel and Gaza as the war there enters its fourth day. I talked with CBS military analyst Jeff McCausen, and I started by asking him about the chance of the violence expanding beyond just Israel and Gaza. If you're the Israelis right now, uh, your concern certainly is focused on Gaza and Hamas, which you're very worried about even a potential three-front war. That would be a war whereby Hezbollah in the north, up on the uh, northern border of Israel, would also intervene. And having physically been on that particular border, I can tell you, Dave, that Hezbollah is a much more sophisticated military organization than Hamas is in terms of tens of thousands of rockets all pointed at Israel. There's already been some exchange of artillery and mortar fire on that border. So far, not an overt intervention by Hezbollah. And then, of course, if you're Israeli, you're concerned about the West Bank. Will Palestinian militant groups living on the West Bank also start violence over there, which would then divert military attention away from the main front, which is the Gaza Strip? Is Israel prepared? Do they have the ammunition uh, in case this war expands? And if not, how do we provide more aid if there's no functioning House of Representatives? That's a great question. It's a pretty poor time for the United States not to be governable, which is what we're facing, though the House Republicans are supposed to meet today, and hopefully they'll solve that problem. Quickly, the Israelis have a large amount of military equipment, obviously, and military hardware. There are several pre-positioned sites for munitions scattered around Israel for their use or potentially our use if there was a major Middle Eastern contingency. That being said, this particular conflict might go on for a fairly long period of time, I think. Uh, There's already been reports that in conversations between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Biden that Netanyahu said we're going to have to go in, meaning we're going to have to physically invade Gaza. Uh, Think about it, Dave. This is one of the most densely populated areas on the planet Earth. About 2 million people packed into an area of about 140 square miles. That works out to about 13,000 people per square mile. So a combat operation in that heavy urban environment is going to be awful. It's going to negate a lot of the advantages the Israelis have with armor and mechanized equipment. It's going to be door-to-door. It can take a long period of time, and that could translate into greater and greater demands for munitions, particularly tank and artillery. And this comes at a time when the U.S. was about to uh, negotiate an agreement, apparently, between Israel and Saudi Arabia. In fact, there's some speculation that's the reason that Hamas decided to strike now. So what's the status of that agreement? Well, that agreement was moving along, appeared between, uh, for a normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, brokered by the United States. In fact, prior to this attack, uh, Secretary of State Blinken was reported to be scheduling a trip to go to Israel to discuss this particularly a very delicate negotiation with the Israeli government. That being said, at the moment, that probably has put on the back burner because clearly from the from the Saudi Arabian side, they would want to insist on some pretty significant concessions by the Israelis with respect to the Palestinians and some kind of concessions in terms of the holding, the building of more Israeli settlements on the West Bank, uh, etc. Obviously, in this particular light, the Israelis are going to be in no mood, particularly for a very right-wing government, to make those kind of concessions. That being said, it seems to me in the longer term, what this may have reminded the Israelis is there's probably no long-term stability solution in the region absent addressing the Palestinian problem very directly, which we have not done, frankly, for the last 40-odd years. Right. We're talking with CBS News military consultant Jeff McCausen. Jeff, do you have any opinion why Hamas would make this decision? How does this benefit the Palestinian cause in any way? Yeah, I think it 
number one is there's that possibility that they were urged on by the Iranians, as you mentioned before, to kind of scupper uh, this particular potential agreement between the Saudis, Israelis, United States, which would be, from the Iranian point of view, disastrous. From the Hamas point of view, uh, they thought, well, there's a possibility of making this attack right now. The Israelis are not paying attention. They're, you know, tied up with social unrest in the country over these judicial reforms. They're tied up with issues on the West Bank. So this is an opportunity for us to move forward. It also underscores their argument that they are the leaders, the representatives of the Palestinian movement. <clears throat> and that will benefit them, I, I fear, internationally in terms of donations and funding from various sources around the world, most notably, frankly, Iran, perhaps Qatar and other wealthy Arabs uh, in the region. And then last but not least, the seizure of these hostages, which may number 100 to 150, we don't exactly know, is somewhat different than we've seen in past conflicts. And they may well be seeking the release of a significant number of Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails, which right now exceed about 5,000. Well, but I mean, they they were getting subsidies from around the world. Palestinians were, including from Israel, as I understand it. There's no way that's ever going to happen again. It, there's no way Israel's ever going to accept a Palestinian state now, is there? Well, I think there's a possibility the Israelis might. Now, I'm speaking longer term. I mean, if you look back for historical metaphors, you know, the October 1973 war 50 years ago was the other time when the Israelis were just totally surprised by an Arab attack. In that case, it was Egypt, Jordan, and, and Syria. Uh, six months later, the, even though the Bayer government was successful in prosecuting the war, that government collapsed in recrimination over how badly you know, the Israeli intelligence had performed. And there'll be a day of reckoning, I believe, with our Netanyahu government and their population over what is a colossal intelligence failure. And I firmly also believe that particular war and the consequences set the stage for eventually uh, the agreement between Egypt uh, and Israel and the eventual agreement longer term between Jordan and Israel. But Egypt and Jordan both accepted Israel's existence. Hamas never has and has said they never will. No, that's true. But what I'm saying, that was at the stage for the agreement with the Saudis. If that occurs, then perhaps Hamas becomes minimized by this particular conflict. The Palestinian authority becomes, on the West Bank, becomes the voice of the Palestinian people. And that might be been a, a source whereby the international community, Middle Eastern governments, Saudis, Qataris, Kuwaitis, and others, would provide funding to the Palestinian authority to seek some form of stabilization. But that's a long way down the pike. And there's no doubt about it for the time being. Those uh, those particular efforts are on the back burner, to say the least. CBS military consultant Jeff McCausen. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure, Dave. I, oh, Choke points. Let's go. I, With oh, guest host, afternoon traffic anchor Nate Connors. Remember how bad traffic was when Revive I-5 went through downtown Seattle? Well, it has just started again, but this time a little further south. Here's Nate. The five-mile stretch between the Michigan Curve and the Duwamish Curve between Soto and Tukwila are getting their first real makeover since the 60s. Unlike the Revive I-5 projects in downtown and Everett, expansion joints are not a main focus. Amy Marino with the State Department of Transportation. This project is going to be more focused on some concrete panels, grinding down some other spots in the road to just kind of eliminate some ruts. We're really focused on trying to improve the condition of the road, just really trying to improve the driving surface. And why is it concrete? Concrete as opposed to asphalt? Spokesperson Tom Pierce. Concrete uh, does last a lot longer than asphalt. Asphalt, you're probably looking at repaving 10 to 15 years. Concrete, uh, you might get uh, 20 to 30 years out of it. 
Work will be done in sections, shutting down lanes and ramps in the work zones between 9 at night and 5 the following morning. Most of this work is scheduled for late night and some weekends in an effort to have the least amount of impact on traffic as possible. Drivers won't see weekend closures right away. We're looking at starting the weekend-long lane reductions. You know, we close two or three lanes, and then we leave one or two lanes open. We're looking at starting those uh, right now. The contractor is considering late January for that. Once that begins, a dozen weekend closures will be added. This chapter of Revive I-5 will tackle southbound I-5 before moving over to the northbound direction. And if you're wondering what happened to Northgate? We're not doing it in a linear fashion. Um, We need some time to get that whole Yesler to Northgate area, get all of the details sorted out on that, get our contractor on board. The Northgate project is expected to follow the current work that just got underway. With over 200,000 daily commuters between Soto and Tukwila, this preservation work is critical to keep drivers and commerce moving. This preservation work is really critical, but at the same time, we know we can't keep building lanes on the freeway. That's why we do have this Revive I-5 plan, because uh, we do want to look long-term. We're hoping I-5 will be here for many decades to come. Nate Connors, Cairo News Radio. Good. I'm glad they're keeping the expressway. That's always helpful. yeah. That's always good. And yeah, the, the the part that he was talking about there in Northgate is we were expecting to start from Mercer through Northgate, uh, going north out, out of downtown this year, but they pushed it because of all the work still going on with 520 and the express lanes there. Uh, so yeah, the the Ship Canal TLC that we've been talking about, that's next on next. the list. So yeah, that's been pushed down the road a little bit. That's too bad. Is this, uh, is this weather dependent, this work? No, not really. No, okay. I mean, this is kind of stuff that they can get done as long as they're not pouring concrete. If they're replacing the paneling, they can do that. Uh, so, But yeah, it's really just the painting and striping at the end of the work that can, can be somewhat weather dependent. 648 Seattle's Morning News. At 7.15, we're talking uh, with New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold to get his update from Washington. But first, let's talk about the Supreme Court. CBS News' legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum is covering the new term. It began this month. There are some uh, pretty big cases. I see that one of them involves the First Amendment and social media. What is that one about, Thane? Well, that's not today. Uh, To say different cases are not nearly as exciting uh, and I think culturally meaningful as what you've just described. Um, But you may remember that last term was the first term that high tech came before the court. uh, And that was situations related to whether families whose children specifically were killed by ISIS could bring lawsuits uh, under anti-terrorism laws against Google and other browsers, because we know um, that um, it's, in fact, ISIS and other uh, 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 terrorists who actually not just communicate with each other on social media, but learn how to do things like make bombs, right? Make a bomb out of household appliances and kitchens. So surprisingly, last year, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided that in nine to zero, right? Nine to zero, there was no, even with the conservative Supreme Court, that the that these that these entities browsers essentially had First Amendment rights, and that they were nothing like they were more like telephones. Mm-hmm. They're not accomplices, right? They're not accomplices. That it's not their job to deal with content. Um, you know that if you search for things as Justice Thomas said, isn't searching the whole point of what you do on these things. And so it was surprising, but it was the very first time 
uh, that the support Supreme Court first. Now we're hearing really something else, which is uh, the the uh, the rights of social media companies and browsers to edit at content or to refuse content. Right. We know that conservative politicians, including Donald Trump, had his Twitter account removed. Yeah. Right. So the question then becomes two things. One, can they edit content? Can they use content in specific ways? Can they make distinctions between content? We want to hear from Dave Roberts. We do not want to hear from Thane Rosenbaum. We will shut him off <laughs> and give and give Dave the platform and none of that. We can rig the algorithm that everything Dave Roberts says goes to the front of the line and anything anyone else says goes to the bottom of the line. And the question is, are these companies like common carriers, like, you know, the rules that were established with trains and buses and planes? You can't make distinctions between people. You can't go, we will let you sit in the front of the car, but you can't even get on the train. So the question becomes, are these private companies that have their own rights uh, to, to uh, nav- navigate and edit and curate the material on their content or to even deny service to people? Or are they more like common carriers in the government that they really are functioning like the town square and that if they're making themselves available as a town square, they can't discriminate against each other? Well, I mean, if they've uh, if the courts already ruled they're like telephones, telephones presumably don't monitor and censor your content. So a terrorist can pick up a phone and and, uh, make a call. But I would say that Google is more like uh, these days, more like a broadcaster, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, actually, the, that Dave Roberts argument is probably going to be said in the oral argument when a case goes before the Supreme Court. They're going to say, Your Honors, nine of you last year decided that the family, uh, this is really tragic, a family, uh, I think they're Gonzalez's, sent their college aged girl. Uh, you know, this is a reminiscent of what's happening now, happened in Israel two days ago. They sent their college aged girl to Paris to study abroad, mm-hmm. and she was gunned down in a cafe, an outdoor cafe in, in Paris. She was just having coffee with friends, and she never came back. And the parents said, it's Google's fault. Yeah. That, you know, it's their fault. They, they, that's how they recruit people. That's how they train people. That's how they communicate with people. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, not really. That's not exactly what they are. Uh, we don't hold them responsible as if, if, as if they're accomplices. Here the question is really about the first right, the First Amendment rights. Do they? Remember, um, the issue, they're not the government, right? They're, you know, Google is a private corporation. So they have the right to speak in any way they want to speak, and they can, they can even choose not to speak. So that's why they're saying not only can we promote certain people, we can deny service to, to certain people because we're like curators in a museum. We get to decide what paintings go up there. You don't go into a museum and say, I don't like that painting. Go get one from downstairs and put that up there. And Google's saying, no, that's not exactly how it works. We get to build our algorithm. But as you know, conservative groups saw this very differently, right? They said, wait a minute, we didn't even know about the Hunter Biden laptop until it was too late. You guys didn't want that story out there. You were put your finger on the Joe Biden bandwagon. 
And so this these cases are largely being brought by state uh, state attorneys generals, generals uh, and um, and by conservative groups that see an abuse of what they would call right. to be the town square uh, in social media and in, in, in the Internet. CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. Thank you, Thane. Anytime, Dave. Thank you. And on Tuesdays, we get a briefing from New York Times reporter David Farenthold, who is assigned to Washington, D.C., to put his ear to the ground and listen to all the rumblings. I want to know, have you gotten a feel for how concerned uh, either administration, uh, Biden administration officials are or members of Congress that this uh, war between Israel and Gaza is going to spread? Very concerned. I mean, I think there's a concern that Hezbollah, the Iranian allies in the north of Israel and Lebanon, will take this moment to attack. That, you know, it, it, Iran has made some noises that if Israel strikes back at Gaza or Hezbollah, that Iran could, could shoot missiles at Israel directly or through proxies in Syria. I mean, it does seem like the Israelis for now seem to be taking steps not to point the finger at Iran, not to turn this into a direct war with Iran or with any of Iran's other proxies like Hezbollah or, you know, the Syrian regime. But, you know, certainly Iran is using it as a way to show strength. I don't think that it's going to turn into that sort of broader fight, but if it does, that could get very destructive. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get a feel for that myself. And just reading some of the dispatches this morning, I, I noticed, this, like you said, a, a trend to say, no, there's no evidence. I mean, France is saying there's no evidence that uh, Iran is involved in any way. But they've been a, a longtime sponsor of these groups, have they not? I mean, if well, let me ask you this. What would we define as involvement in terms of actions we might then want to take against Iran? Is it supplying Weapons? Is it uh, training militants? Is uh, I mean, there was even a story the other day that it was Iran or an Iranian organization that gave the green light to start this. I, I think w- the way that they seem to be defining it, both Israel and the, and the U.S., is that you know we know that uh, Iran supplies weapons to Hamas, supplies training to Hamas. You know, th- the line they seem to be drawing is they don't see a connection between Iran and this particular attack. Now, you mentioned that Wall Street Journal report, which says that Iran you know, basically signed off on this attack in a meeting the Monday Monday prior. I think, it's, you know, both Iran and Israel and the U.S. have all been trying to say that's not true. If it was, if Iran actually seemed to have given the order for this, that would seem like, you know, it would be a loss of face for Israel not to take some action directly against them. So I think people seem to be drawing, making that the red line. As long as Iran didn't set up this attack or order this attack, then there's no reason to attack Iran. You know, we could find out later that they did. Yeah. Because that's the challenge. I mean, Israel is not shy about saying if we think our national security is at stake, we'll attack Iran. At least that's been their policy in the past. Um, is, do you think that still holds true? They've said that, but they looked so weak in the last couple of days. I think they, you know, they maybe felt like a little bit complacent and distracted by this sort of effort to over to get rid of the Supreme Court or to, to tame the Supreme Court in Israel. So they have not looked like the powerhouse of old where, you know, they could boast about being able to strike Iran. They probably could, and they they still have a lot of powerful offensive capabilities, but they are not in a moment of, you know, they don't have the upper hand yet, even in Gaza, fighting some militants. So they don't seem to be spoiling for a fight with another state. Yeah. Okay, I'm also reading a lot of stories here that it is a, it's a problem that there's no Speaker of the House, particularly now, because Israel's going to need more money. How serious is that? 
Well, I mean, Israel already has a lot of money and a lot of U.S. weapons, but they have asked for more ammunition for their Iron Dome anti-rocket system. They've asked for more sort of small arms ammunition, tank ammunition, things they would need to fight a ground offensive. Now, I'm sure that the U.S. could give that to them in some way without needing Congress to pass a new bill. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, this is an issue that does unite Republicans. This is one of the few issues that Republicans can all agree on. And one of the few areas where the U.S. is like projecting power outside the U.S., helping another country that Republicans all agree on. So I think it's partly that it may slow down the actual response, but it, it also slows down Republicans' efforts to sort of look like they're part of the response or take part in the response. Um, the longer this goes on, the longer there's no speaker, the longer the House can't have any role in that. Well, do they all agree? Do the eight agree? The magnificent eight? I think it, if the House had a speaker, the vast majority of Republicans and a lot of Democrats would want to send weapons to Israel. So that bill could definitely pass. Uh, the question is just, you know, right now, the, 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 they can't do anything, literally anything, until they choose a speaker. And the speaker race seems pretty evenly divided. It does not seem like there's a favorite at this point. So, you know, at this point, I think the balloting is supposed to start on Wednesday. It doesn't look like they're gliding toward a resolution there that would enable them to get on to other business. Yeah, but there's a new dark horse, David. It's Kevin himself, who I, I heard the interview on Hugh Hewitt. He said, well, you know, if they want me, I'd be open to coming back. What do you think of the chances of that? I mean, it might happen. They, they picked him once, and only, you know, and, and last week, all but eight of them liked him again. I mean, I, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, and the Democrats might, you know, having seen the alternatives, which were Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, they might decide it's worth it. I don't know. The Democrats, you know, obviously because the Republicans have such a small minority, a few Republicans plus all the Democrats can keep this thing paralyzed. And Democrats may decide that's in their political interest, uh, even if it's not in, you know, the country's interest. Uh, one other little thing, I guess it's sort of uh, inside baseball, but I saw that uh, Tom Cole, who runs the House Rules Committee, says that uh, with McCarthy gone, the agreement they made for these deep cuts in spending is now null and void. Is that what you're reading, too? I mean, I think everything McCarthy said was is kind of null and void. I mean, also, you know, McCarthy that was one of his flaws was, that he, you know, he'd make agreements and then either he couldn't keep them or he didn't want to keep them. He would say whatever it took to sort of get through today. So I think that agreement was null and void anyway, but it, it probably def- it definitely is if he's out the door. The thing is, Scalise or Jordan, whoever of them gets, if one of them gets selected speaker, are going to want equally deep cuts. I mean, they're, they are going to both. That's what they want and what they'll have to promise to get that job. Yeah. OK. The other political development is that Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who was going to challenge Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination, says uh, he's dropping that challenge. He's going to run as an independent. How was that received? Well, I think all the Republicans who've been cheering on Robert F. Kennedy abruptly turned around and said, oh, no, Robert F. Kennedy's a loon. You know, he, he shouldn't be running for president um, because he the, the people that Robert F. Kennedy appeals to are people who are old and think, you know, they used to be Democrats in the age of Kennedy and they vote for a Kennedy, but not any other Democrat. I remember one of the big things about QAnon was all these old people pining for JFK to still be alive. So that name still has a lot of resonance for, you know, older Democrats or ex-Democrats, but also his anti-vaccine, his, like, you know, sort of conspiratorial mindset, that that reaches a lot of people who also like Trump. So I think Republicans now uh-huh. go, oh, wow, this this person we had seen as kind of a disruptive force and a way to laugh at the Democratic primary, now he could be taking sort of the loonier votes from Trump, from people who, you know, believe even you know, things that even Trump won't go so far as to say. So I, I think he's more of a threat to Trump than to Biden in the general, but I still don't know how much of a threat he is to anybody. So are the Democrats going to start financing him now? <laughs> no, I think he's got enough money. The man raises a lot of money. There's a lot of people out there, sort of tech bros and other people that are willing to give him money. And he, you know, he gets a lot of free airtime. 
So he's got a great name. So, you know, I don't think they need to give him money to hurt Trump. Yeah, he does have a great name, along with, uh, what is he, uh, Patrick McHenry. They both have excellent political names. Yes, exactly. (laughs) David Farenthold from The New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. Time for your daily dose of kindness now, brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Two Ohio teenagers were given a special treat, one that only teens would love after stepping up and doing the right thing. Janiah Freeman and Eliana Nickel saw a group steal packages off a porch. And after they watched the group tear through them, leaving the remnants and unwanted goods under a car, they tell WLWT-TV in Cincinnati they just knew something was wrong. I was like... Oh, that was really wrong. We thought that it was a really bad thing to do, to take someone's stuff and um, just do something very awful with it. The pair could have walked away from the scene, but instead they retrieved the packages, took them back to the house they saw they were stolen from, and they left a note. I was walking home with a friend, and we saw a group of four people take your package and put it under a car. They were throwing it around, so I just wanted to... Let you know. It turns out they belong to a local business owner, Vanita Allen. She says the box that was returned was full of supplies for Operation Pumpkin. It's a celebration of fall in Ohio. And she told the girls they made an impact that day. It's quite a bit of money. And as a small business person, if I would have lost that, I would have lost a lot of money this weekend. And that kindness is always needed. The world needs good things right now. And you two are definitely an asset to the world. And while the girls didn't do a good deed for the reward, they were treated to one. They brought, uh, Vanita brought a lunch of burgers and shakes delivered to their school so all their friends could be jealous of that. Uh, So that was a nice treat for them doing the right thing. And from the Jean Ursula Show, which starts at 9 o'clock, Ursula Royteen filling in for G Today, Travis Mayfield. And today's issue is why are there no clean public bathrooms around the city? So you guys have figured this out? Well, we just we figured it out as a really crappy situation because there just aren't any. Well, we already know that. <laughs> yes. Do you know that the city has 200 public restrooms? Most of them are in parks. Right. And most of them, okay, or more than a third of them, let's say, are closed during the winter. So yeah. you're really in bad shape if you have to go to the bathroom suddenly in Seattle and it's winter time. And Ursula, didn't you say yesterday on the show that the, like there are UN statistics about this that we don't even meet? Uh, <laughs> we're, we're like yes. developing country level, refugee camp level yes. bathroom I mean, situation. It is extremely sad, but you also understand why it's happening. Did you, I didn't realize this, but Sound Transit did this study and it shows that to the cost of maintaining and basically keeping restrooms secure and mm-hmm. clean is $320,000 per site. Per site? Per site. Well, uh, could, wait a second. So Exactly. For that, <laughs> you could just pay somebody to live there and take care of it. Exactly. You? Why don't well, you do you that, think that And And, and the, yet, they say with the state on the stations without toilets, it, it the, there's a cost that is associated with that, too, because what ends up happening, yeah. if you don't have a place to go, you're going to... Yeah. Some people we seem are to be to in denial right that we are, you know, living biological creatures in this country <laughs> for some reason. But I, I, I got to chalk it up to a failure of toilet training on the part of America's parents. Because the reason this is such a problem is that people just don't clean up. People are slobs. They don't clean up after themselves. And all of us, I mean, I've had experience now toilet training at least three human beings. And, uh, you know, every parent does. Isn't there a way we can instill a respect for public restrooms in our children? 
But if there's no place for them to go at all, I think that's But this the is the reason there's no place to go, Travis, <laughs> because it's too expensive to clean them. Yes, the solution the- is to have a, a generation that doesn't <laughs> mess up the public bathrooms. See, And Dave, as you know, I think it goes beyond that. I, and it's a chicken and egg kind yeah. of question, right? What, what happens first? Um, access is very important. I don't know what you do. I know you still go downtown. Yeah. I, 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 it's gotten so bad where I have had to... I, I actually go into a restaurant and I'll buy something. Yeah, same. I'll find something really cheap so I can I can go. We That's used to be able do. to go to Starbucks, but they had to shut down. Why? Because people were abusing yeah. the bathrooms. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily the uh, lack of toilet training at a young age. I mean, it, there also are a lot of people who are drug addicted or who are uh, in... I know that, but if you're yes. drug addicted, does that mean and and as you you have this phenomenon of high what is it high performing drug addictors drug addicts right? They're able to keep their jobs. Why can't they at least be neat when they're giving themselves the needle in the bathroom? I, yes, I wish that was the case. Uh, it's not, and the rest of us have to pay for it. I mean, that's that's really the problem. I think about like the Uber driver who's on a heart medication that makes them have the urge to go to the bathroom yeah. and then doesn't have a spot to go. And so like they're out there like in your neighborhood looking for like the Santa can at the the, the construction site at your house. Yeah. I mean, like that's a terrible situation to be in. Or, you know, you talk about potty training kids like we have potty trained kids, but if there isn't a bathroom for them to go and then they have an accident and then you have to ride the light rail home with them and they feel terrible yeah. about it and you feel terrible and you're covered and you're like, well, it's not your fault, kid. Like there was just no place for you to go. Um, that's a terrible situation for us to be in. So, yeah, it's exactly what Ursula said. It's a chicken or egg thing. Like we, we need to find a place for people to go and then we have to figure out a way to keep it clean. And the Seattle Times did a great job looking into this issue uh, and, and they point out that King County Metro has no restrooms for bus riders. Only one light rail station and all of Seattle has public toilets. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to use a restroom at a park or community center, again, the, the, the hours that they're available. Mm-hmm. And then you hear from people who are charged with actually cleaning these toilets and the things that they say they find in them. I yeah, mean, I like, know. Oy. But for I mean, for a hundred thousand dollars a year, you could find somebody who would live in the toilet, don't you think? <laughs> you just have a little place. Oh man, his name have is a- Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> well, I guess the search for solutions continues. <laughs> yes. Thank you both. Yes. Travis and Ursula at nine o'clock. And now it's Mickey time. She's going to help us live our best work life mm-hmm. by uh, talking about making your workplace healthier. Yeah. I can do this on my own? You absolutely can. I mean, there's more people back in the office now, and it might be a little overwhelming. Routines are changed. More people uh, are coming back to the office, like I said, so no more long lunches and walking the dogs at the park. I miss those days. Uh, But how do you stay healthy when you spend 8 to 10 hours a day in the office? Well, you control the things you can control. One of them would be nutrition. Packing appealing lunches. I know, Colleen, you always have the most amazing lunches at 9 a.m. <laughs> I do eat my lunch at 9 a.m. You yeah. do, you do. And they smell so good. So it's oh, less takeout. You're welcome. Less takeout, more home prepped meals. Uh, don't, you know, when, when you don't miss your meals, we all get busy. 
you know, and when when we're working, I know when I'm working on a story and there's deadlines and then I've got to do traffic, I forget to eat and then I get grumpy and then I yell at my boss, Chris, sitting next to me. And then, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) and then you got to, you know, don't miss your meals. Take that lunch break. It's essential to be able to sit there, eat your food and reset your day. Stay it's hydrated. Really hard to do that in the workplace, though. People are always walking by. They want to chit. There's like no downtime to eat your lunch. Well, we have in a cafeteria have a downstairs. Yeah, we do. But that's also you guys know that's also like right in the walkway towards the bathrooms people go to because they're private, and you know why people use private bathrooms. So you're sitting there, you're eating your lunch, and you have to like nod at the person walking to the bathroom. It's just really awkward. It's no. not relaxing at all. Yeah, I never go down there. And then it's I just dark I, and dingy I, down is, there, it too. It is dark. It is dark. And then I heard that that bathroom downstairs is broken right now. So, you oh. know. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Uh, so, at any rate, uh, stay <laughs> hydrated. I love it. Colleen, how many, How much water do you drink in a day? Because I, I, I see you eating the amazing lunches, and then yeah. you have this big jug of water. I know. I'm a camel. I have a half-gallon container, so I only have to fill it up twice. Lately, I've been using my 30. I've got many different sizes. I've mm-hmm. got the 30-ouncer, the 48, the 64. And uh, so I try to drink at least a gallon a day. Well, I don't know if those wow. who are listening can see me on camera right now, but this is Sully's. This that you could hurt somebody with this thing. Well, yeah, it, it, it you know doubles as a protection device. Uh, yeah. You could swing it pretty good if you want. But yeah, I do the same thing following Colleen's lead on the water. All right, this is why there's I just a water dissed- shortage. And since I just just dissed our workplace, I will say that the Pebble Ice Machine has been a nice addition yes, to water yes, consumption it has. around yes. here. It has increased my water consumption. And remember yeah. when we had the smaller ice machine and then it would <laughs> empty so quickly and then they got us the bigger one? That was really nice. <laughs> Fit in some movement. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I have a watch and I track my steps. I get up and I walk around the building almost five to six times a day. I'm constantly huh. I walking. I just thought you were lost. You just thought I was lost? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, where's Mickey going? Mickey keeps walking around in a circle. Also, they say, here's a fun one. Don't multitask. You're right. Oh, They're saying multitasking will make you forget to eat, will make you forget to stay hydrated. You want to go ahead and just, you know... Focus on one thing at a time. It's impossible. Impossible. In the news industry? I mean, I I can see that for some jobs, but yeah. I know. Also, set some work boundaries. (laughs) Yes. Set work around. David, you're nodding your head. Well, specifically, I think Colleen does this really well. Right after the show... We'll often line up interviews with interesting people, and we'll we'll be trying to set up windows for folks to to chat with us and set up interviews. And Colleen has a very specific boundary: from nine o'clock to nine fifteen, that's her lunchtime. That's when she gets to eat. She powers herself up. She gets her brain going for the rest of the day. And I think I that's know this I respect that would that be one. all about me. But I'm, just, you know, I'm over here just blushing. When oh my I, goodness! Well, when I read it, I was like, "This, I, this is Colleen right here. This is well, right up Colleen's it, alley." And a lot of people will know it took a major reset two years ago when I took a month-long break from work because I'm a workaholic. And so I had to create these firm boundaries. And as hard as it is for me to say, like, I think the other day, one of our interviews was ready five minutes early at 9.10. And I said, too bad. I'm mm. eating my lunch. They can wait for five more minutes. Which, right. You know, in my past training, my people-pleasing training feels rude because if they're ready, like, okay, let's go do it. We don't want to make them wait five minutes. But no, you need 15 minutes to relax, eat, do whatever you need to do before you're ready for the next task. Yeah. Dave, what about you? Do you have work boundaries? Do you, what, what I mean, or you, you're just work, chill. Play, it's all the same to me. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I rarely see this man eat, except when Ursula brought what? in some really tasty bagels. Well, I wait for them. the free food, yeah. Okay. And then, and then, you know, if I'm still hungry, then I'll go pay for something. But uh, no, I wait for the free food. Oh, okay. And you take it easy when you're at work? You don't feel overwhelmed at times? You don't... Uh... 
Hmm. I've never seen Dave overwhelmed. He's ever. so zen. That's that's never one thing about you, Dave. You- uh, I think it's because I'm trying to hurt all of you people. I really don't have time to worry about my work life balance. <laughs> Whatever. Oh my god. Like for example, it's eight fifty three now. Mm-hmm. We're twenty seven seconds late for traffic. Let's do but it. If, but if you're finished talking, I just want to make sure you're finished talking. I'm done. All Mickey right. time is over. Okay. Thank you, Mickey. You're very welcome, Dave. Mickey Gomez. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.